0: Good morning to you all, and we continue this morning working our way through Exodus. And we pick up the story on the eastern banks of the Red Sea, where the fledgling nation of Israel have just produced their first number one hit, the horse and its rider. And according to 1520 to 21, they've celebrated their redemption from slavery by the mighty miracle working hand of God with music and with singing and with dancing And they had plenty to celebrate because however you look at this story, Israel standing there in completely dry clothing on the other side of the Red Sea were living, breathing evidence of a miracle. In his book, Signs and Wonders for Today, Donald Bridge tells the story of a liberal preacher visiting an African-American church. And as he preached on this passage on the crossing of the The Red Sea, member of the congregation, yelled out, praise the Lord, taking all those children through those deep waters. What a mighty miracle. And the minister, who was somewhat sceptical of miracles and more than a little bit annoyed at the interruption to his message, proceeded to provide his own explanation. To him, the sea might just have been some sort of tidal marshland. And so he went on to explain his conclusion, which was that the Israelites walked through in about six inches of marshy water. And there was a hush over the congregation. And a couple of seconds later, the same voice came booming out again. Praise the Lord, drowning all those Egyptians in just six inches of water. What a mighty miracle of God. And, you know, people have come up with all sorts of explanations to explain away the Red Sea crossing. But however you look at it, the crossing of the Red Sea has miracle written all over it. And only Israel had experienced it and got to the other side and lived to tell the tale. They'd walked through on dry ground as those waters rose beside them. And I don't know about you, but... I get scared going to the Melbourne Aquarium and going through that tunnel that they have to get to the main tank in the middle, sort of worry that the thing might crack and collapse and come down on you. I reckon I would have been hot footing it as quickly as I could through to the other side. But they'd made it and then they turned and watched those walls come crashing down on the Egyptians. And their reaction, this spontaneous outburst of singing and dancing tells us that what they experienced was exactly as the Bible described it, a mighty miracle of God. And so they celebrate and I get the feeling that these were your celebrating kind of people because amongst all the things that you might be packing in a hurry for a a fast exit from Egypt, It seems that most of the women, verse 20 tells us, had packed tambourines and this would have been a joyous festival kind of atmosphere. And at the end of these celebrations, presumably on a high, they set off into the desert to begin their journey as redeemed pilgrims, saved by the blood of a lamb and heading finally towards the promised land. Now, up until now in our journey through Exodus, the spotlight has rested mostly on Pharaoh or else on Moses. They have been the major players in this drama. And you might recall we've also seen those pointy fingers that we've had a few times in the last couple of weeks. And they've been pointing forward from Moses to Christ. And that's happened many times already in the book of Exodus. Well, today, those pointy fingers are making a comeback. Actually, they will be making several appearances today, but for the most part, they're pointing right back at you and at me as redeemed pilgrims heading towards heaven, our promised land. And that's the power in today's message, the ease with which we can slot ourselves in to this story. So at the end of their singing and dancing, Moses leads them into the desert of Shur and they travel for three days without finding any water and then they come to Marah and much to their great relief, there's water. You can imagine the scene as a ripple of expectation moves through the journeying crowd. Water to quench their thirst And as they come upon it, someone cups their hands and bends down and takes a sip of the water and comes up looking like they've just sucked on a lemon. Someone else goes down. A number of them go down in disbelief. And then there's lemon-sucking, puckered faces all around. The water is bitter and undrinkable. And so begins the first in what will be a series of Israelite grumblings. Now remember, it's only been three days since they experienced God moving aside a vast body of water so that they could walk through it. Or three days since they celebrated that memory anyway. Three days since they broke out in joyful song and now here they are and they struck the first of what will be four crises that we'll deal with this morning. Have you ever been like that? I can recall when our children were young, we had one particularly dreadful child, um, Joel was his name, and uh, as a baby, he screamed nonstop. He cried and he cried and he cried and he continued crying for roughly three and a half years. And at the end of the the first year of this trial, uh, Bruce and I longed to just get away, to get out of the house because it was hard. You couldn't go anywhere because wherever you went, he cried and people looked at you and you could tell what they were thinking. And so we planned a holiday to Queensland, just a change of scenery to get away from it all. And uh, we anticipated this holiday eagerly for about six months and, and the excitement built up and built up. And then the reality came, and we we got on the plane, and Joel cried the whole way there, and everyone looked at us, and we'd flown to the Gold Coast, but once we got to the Gold Coast, we had to drive to Brisbane, and Joel cried the whole way in the car. And then when we got to Brisbane, we were staying at Bruce's brother's house, and he only had one spare bedroom, and we certainly didn't want Joel in with us, because he would cry all night, so he had to stay in the study, which meant that everyone could hear him who was crying when he cried. And at the end of the first 24 hours, Bruce and I looked at each other and said, we're so much better at home. We should have stayed at home. Bruce's brother actually told us at the end of that trip, we stayed there I think for a week. And at the end of that trip, he said, this experience has made me so glad that I was never able to have children. <laughs> We can be like that, can't we? Something that is so exciting and something that is so anticipated, when it comes and it's not quite what we thought, doesn't take very long for our grumbling to start and for us to wish that we were back where we were, where we wanted to be, the place that we wanted to be out of in the first place. So Israel this morning are going to face four trials and this is the first of them. And as we work through these trials this morning, we're going to watch out for the ways in which God deals with them. And we're going to look out for what he's trying to teach them as they go along. And above all, we're going to remember where those fingers are pointing right back at us. We may not be facing any shortage of water or food, and it's fairly safe to say that none of us are going to come under attack from the Amalekites but we can learn the lessons of their wilderness journey and seek to apply the learnings from them to our own journeys. So having recovered from their lemon-sucking faces after tasting the waters of Mara, what do the people do? They grumble. And that's a word we're gonna have to get used to this morning because you're gonna hear it quite a bit, grumbling and quarreling are the defining features of this part of the Israelite journey. And before we get out the saddle and saddle up our high horse, let's consider their situation and ask ourselves, would we really be any different? They're in a desert. They've been travelling for three days. They haven't found water in those three days. And whatever supplies of water that they had been able to bring with them would by now either be severely depleted um, or gone completely. There would have been among them mothers with thirsty children and we know that they also brought herds and flocks with them and they would have required watering as well. What lies ahead of them looks bleak. So we can understand their grumbling because in the same situation, most of us would be grumbling too. But wait, there's water up ahead, and yes, you can feel their relief, and their relief turns to joy, and then their joy morphs into bitter disappointment, bitter disappointment, when they realise that the water is bitter and undrinkable. And all of a sudden, The miracles of the plagues, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, all of these miracles from not that long ago are forgotten, completely overwhelmed by the crisis of their current situation. Not so long ago, the presence of God was so tangible, so real, and so exhilarating to them, and now it's almost as if none of these things had happened. Ever been there, sort of riding that wave of spiritual high, only to come crashing down, overwhelmed by whatever the current crisis is that makes everything around you just seem to turn bitter. What is Israel's first reaction when faced with this crisis? Cry out to God. You might think that might be their first reaction. After all, just look what God did for them last time. They cried out to him under the burden of slavery. But no, instead they grumble against Moses saying, what are we to drink? And Moses does what Israel should have done for themselves and he cries out to God on their behalf. And that's something that we must be prepared to do for others when the circumstances of their life overwhelms them and seeks to undermine their own faith. And God responds graciously with a miracle providing some wood for Moses to throw into the water, which miraculously turns the bitter water sweet. And the first lesson here is obvious. Their survival in the wilderness will be directly related to their ability to depend upon God. God can and he will provide all they need for whatever circumstances they find themselves in, but they need to have faith. And that faith needs to manifest itself in a dependence upon him. Then in verse 26, God adds to dependence obedience. If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Dependence and obedience must be the marks of faith in the children of God. And so they move on and they come to a place called Elim, where they find not one but 12 springs of fresh potable water, one for every tribe in Israel. And I don't think that's any sort of coincidence. God is underscoring his point here. See, I will completely provide for all of your needs. 12 springs and 70 palm trees, just illustrating in this lush oasis scene, the abundance and fullness of God's provision for them. And so we move on now to um, chapter 16. On the 15th day of the second month, so that's a month to the day since they left Egypt, Israel left Elim and headed into the desert of Sin on their way to Sinai. And uh oh, here comes that G word again. And this time it's a full blown assault. The whole community are grumbling. If only we'd died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you, Moses, have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Like that's what he planned all along from the beginning. Notice how all of a sudden slavery, the very cause of their groanings in the first place, suddenly seems so appealing and its hardships are all forgotten. Forgotten also are the blessings of God, overwhelmed by the present reality of not having any food. And aren't we just like them when hard times come upon us, prone so easily to forget the blessings of God, prone to forget the hardships of life without Christ, and so prone to grumbling. Now, on face value, their grumbling is directed towards Moses and Aaron, But what they're really grumbling about is the wisdom in God's guidance. What they're really saying here is we don't trust you, God. And so God is going to have to teach them exactly what it means to trust and obey. And he does this by raining down bread from heaven, which the Israelites called manna. Now, the word manna means what is it? because when they went out and saw it on the ground, they had no idea what it was. This was something they had never seen before, and because they had never seen it before, they couldn't write this off as some sort of freak, natural phenomenon. Nor did it have anything to do with any kind of effort expended by them. The only effort they had to put in was to bend down and pick it up, collect it. So there could be no other explanation for this provision other than God so the manna appeared in the morning and the quail which every fan of Master Chef knows is a fancy very tiny kind of chicken appeared in the evening and Israel is instructed that they are to collect just as much as they need each day keeping none of it until the morning and on the sixth day they had to collect a double portion so that they can rest and still have enough on the Sabbath without having to do the work of collecting it. So have a look at the second half of verse four. God says to Moses, in this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. Manna would be the means by which God would teach Israel to trust him each day, day by day, one day at a time for the rest of their journey with him. So how did Israel measure up in terms of trust and obedience? Well, from verse 17, they went out and they did what they were told, gathering as much as they needed, looking good so far. But then skip down to verse 20, and there's that dreaded word, however, Some of them paid no attention to Moses. They were specifically instructed to keep none of it till the morning. However, some of them paid no attention to what Moses had said, and they kept it until the morning and found that it was full of maggots and began to smell. And so Moses was angry with them. Continue on down to verse 24. We've got to the sixth day, and Israel have collected their double portion to last for the Sabbath, when they must rest and not collect manna. Verse 24 reads, So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Verse 27 says, nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. And by this stage, Moses must just be going like this. But this time it's God who expresses his frustration with them. How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Well, Israel didn't fare so well in terms of trust and obedience. But how would you do? Well, you might say, what has manna got to do with me? I'm not a Hebrew in the desert wilderness and God's not asking me to go out and collect manna. And if you said that, of course, you'd be right. We're not Hebrews journeying with God through the desert wilderness and we're not living off manna. But we are Christians And we journey with God through the wilderness of our lives. And he has provided for us on this journey bread from heaven. You see, this passage is not just about the logistics of an ancient people collecting manna in the desert. That message, whilst historically interesting, would be mostly irrelevant for us today. This passage is about trust. And it couldn't be more relevant if it tried. And we're going to cue the pointy fingers. And this time, they're pointing that way towards the New Testament. Would you turn with me to John chapter 6 in your Bibles, if you've got Bibles? John chapter 6. And the context here is that Jesus has recently fed the 5,000 and the crowds are impressed and they're beginning to wonder just who he might be. Could he really be the promised Messiah? So they go searching for him and when they find him, they begin to question him. Jesus, they think, has just fed the 5,000 but he's only done this miracle once. Moses, they reason. Fed the entire nation of Israel, and he did it every day for 40 years. And he didn't just use ordinary bread, but bread from heaven, manna. And what they want from Jesus is a sign greater than the manna from Moses' ministry to prove that he is indeed the promised Messiah. And so we're going to be reading from verse 30. This is how the conversation goes. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, from now on, give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Here in this passage, Jesus says, I am, I am the bread of life, something far greater and far more permanent than manna. I can meet your deepest need. Whoever trusts in me will live forevermore. Is Jesus enough for you? Will you take him at his word today or will you be like the Israelites? and try to do your own thing, your own way just in case? Will you trust him to provide just what you need for today or is your head too full of tomorrow's worries? Life right now may not exactly be what any of us would have imagined or wanted for 2020. Let Jesus be your bread of life. Trust him to be enough for today and for each day thereafter. And I know that's easier said than done. When life gets tough in the wilderness, our default position seems to be grumbling. But that is a really dangerous position to be in. Israel grumbled about lack of water and lack of food, but what they were really saying to God was, we don't trust you, God. And our grumbling communicates that same message. Chapter 17, we move on to crisis number three and it's a familiar one. Israel are once again on the move and they are going, verse one tells us, from place to place as the Lord commanded them. They're not wandering aimlessly here. They're going where the Lord commanded them. And so when they reach Rephidim, they are there because God wants them to be there. But uh uh-oh, when they get there, there's no water to drink. Now you would have think you would think that having been in this same predicament before, and indeed probably not that long ago before, Israel might have learned from their past mistakes. You might think that, but you would be wrong. There's no water, so they quarrel with Moses. And Moses knows straight away what they're up to. Why do you put the Lord to the test? He asks. But the people are thirsty. And so they pull out that G word again, grumble, grumble, grumble. And they point the finger at Moses and accuse him of bringing them out of Egypt to make their children and their livestock die of thirst. And this time the grumbling is heading towards full-on rebellion. Look at verse 4. The Israelites are almost ready to stone Moses. Moses, who must by now be completely fed up with Israel, again cries out to the Lord And the Lord gives him some very specific instructions. And these instructions culminate with Moses hitting a rock with his staff, which causes water to pour from the rock. Now, if that was all there was to this passage, God says hit the rock with the staff. Moses hits the rock and water pours out. If that was all there was, if that was all it was intended to teach, I'm sure that that would be all that was written, but it's not. This is a very carefully crafted little paragraph. And so when you find a little gem like that, it's always worth pausing to dig a little deeper into that paragraph. So I want you to try and imagine the scene that is described here. Verse five says, the Lord instructed Moses to walk on ahead of the people, taking with him some of the elders, and his staff. Now the staff is described in a very particular way. It is described as the staff with which you struck the Nile. Why not as the staff which turned into a snake or the staff which you held over the Red Sea? Why not just take a staff, any old staff? God could just as easily use any staff to do the next miracle. Could it be that this A little bit of seemingly insignificant detail is actually trying to communicate something very significant to us what happened there at the Nile when the water was struck with the staff might that be an important clue firstly God's judgment came upon Egypt and then their water supply was effectively poisoned when it turned to blood when Moses struck the Nile So file that little detail away in your mind somewhere for a minute because we're going to come back to it. So Moses has gone on ahead of the people with the elders who are the representatives of of Israel. And then in verse 6, God says that he himself will stand in front of them beside the rock. So Moses and the elders, God and the rock, and behind them, is this whole gallery of people watching on. Does that scene remind you of anything? Can you see what's happening here? The guilty ones, the grumblers here, have put the innocent one, God, on trial. And judgment is coming because the only thing between them is that staff of Moses. Moses has got that staff of judgment there and Israel deserves just what Egypt got. But God commands Moses instead to strike the rock, effectively taking that judgment upon himself and water pours out and those thirsty grumblers drink their fill. Now, can you think of anywhere else in the Bible where the guilty ones, the grumblers, put the innocent one, God, on trial? I'll give you a couple of clues. The first one is our trusty finger pointing forward from this little detail in the desert to something greater. And the second one comes from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10... 1 to 4, he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. This testing of the Lord that was begun here in Exodus reached its climax at the cross. In both places, the guilty party put the innocent one on trial and in both places, the verdict was essentially the same. God said, strike the rock and he bore the judgment that we deserved. From one rock flowed water to to quench the thirsty grumblers and to sustain the people and from the other, living water, welling up to eternal life. These are beautiful, beautiful, rich and deep passages of scripture, little glints of gold that conceal great, big, precious nuggets. And already here we found three New Testament concepts that have their genesis right here in the wilderness. Jesus, the bread of life, Jesus who bears the judgment that we deserve, and Jesus, the source of living water. And that in a nutshell is why I love the Old Testament and why I will always maintain that if you can get your head around the book of Exodus, and I mean really get your head around it, not just a superficial reading, if you can really get your head around the book of Exodus, then it will open up for you the New Testament in ways that you could never have imagined. Now these passages are worthy of far more time than we can give them here today. I can only urge you to go back and keep digging because you won't be disappointed with what you find but we must move on because a problem with water is not the only problem Israel faces at Riphidim. The fourth crisis that Israel faced in this part of their wilderness journey was an attack at the hands of the Amalekites. And so here comes lesson number four in the school of trust and obey. And the scene reads like this. Israel is about to go into armed battle for the first time. They have no training. They're a bunch of former slaves. They're in foreign territory, Amalekite territory and the last few months have seen them grumbling, quarreling and grumbling some more. They're not exactly the definition of a well-oiled military machine. To make matters worse, if they could get any worse, God has removed their leader and stuck him up on a hill along with his two IC Aaron and another guy named Hur. Can you get a feeling for what God is trying to do here? What options does Israel have? Fight in their own strength, which will mean certain defeat, or put their trust in God? He's setting them up to win an unwinnable battle. And in winning the unwinnable battle, he will comprehensively answer their question, which they posed in chapter 17, verse 7 Is the Lord among us or not? So, just as Moses commanded, Joshua chooses some men and off they go to fight this unwinnable battle, while Moses, up on the hill, holds the staff of God in his hands. Now, as we've seen already, this staff in the hands of Moses is pretty important. It's triggered plagues, it's divided the sea, it's caused water to pour from a rock. It is symbolic of the power and the presence of God. So here we go, staff raised in the hands of Moses, Israel gained the upper hand in battle. Staff comes down and the Amalekites gain the upper hand in battle. And just in case there was any doubt about in whose strength they're fighting, Moses doesn't even have enough strength to keep the staff up in the air. His hands get heavy and they have to be propped up, one on Aaron's shoulder and one on the shoulder of her in what would have to be one of the most endearing images of of leadership in all of the Old Testament. And so against all odds, Israel wins the unwinnable battle and in the process they learn a very valuable lesson. Israel learns that she is to depend upon God to provide the victory. Is that a lesson that you have learnt yet? Why did God lead Israel through the wilderness before they made it to Canaan? Well, Moses himself provides us with the answer to that question when he addresses Israel some 40 years later, when finally their wilderness experience is about to come to an end and they prepare to enter the promised land. He says this to them. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. That's obedience. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then he fed you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's trust or dependence. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. That's the provision of God. Know then in your heart that as a man disciples his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you as he As a man disciplines your son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. None of us enjoy our times in the wilderness. The wilderness is a tough, tough place to be, and you might be there right now facing your own trials. You might even be at that point of asking, as the Israelites did, is the Lord among us or not? All around the winds of change might be blowing, They might be making you feel uncomfortable or perhaps the winds of suffering keep coming at you mercilessly. Have the winds of disaster swirled around and through your family of late? Maybe it's the wind of uncertainty or perhaps you felt the winds of despair. When the wind blows in the wilderness, a tree has two options and so do we, fall over, or send your roots down deeper. The wilderness, said Moses, is where we are humbled and where the true state of our heart is revealed. Don't allow yourself to be blown over. Send those roots down deep. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Our wilderness times are where we learn to trust God, to listen for his leading, and then where we learn to obey. In the wilderness, we learn to depend on him, And when we do, we will find, as Israel did, that he is enough to sustain us and see us through, right through to the other side. Father, we thank you that you are every bit as present with us in our journey as you were with Israel in the wilderness. Forgive us, Father, when we have grumbled, when we have failed to recognise your presence and your provision in our midst. Thank you for sending Jesus, the true bread of heaven, our rock and our source of living water. We love you and we worship you. And we pray that when trials come our way and the true state of our heart is revealed, Lord, that what is revealed may indeed be pleasing to you. Amen. Hopefully most of you will have remembered that we've got a morning tea on this morning. Uh, You will have been sent the details via Zoom um, in our announcements this week. So on the conclusion this morning, we'll give you about five minutes to log into Zoom and to get ready before we start shuffling people into rooms so that they can catch up with one another. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.